reading from God's Word is from the Gospel according to Mark. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's own true and eternal word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down to unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan, and straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Thus far in God's holy and eternal word and let us... Dear congregation, I invite you to open again God's Word to Mark chapter 1 as we hope to consider um, the portion that we have read and specifically certain verses. I'll be reading right now um, verse 6 through 8. Verse 6 presents the very appearance of John the Baptist as a, as a prophet among God's people and clearly proclaiming that he was here to point others to the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, we read, And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin, or leather, about his loins, And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, 
The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Both John and Jesus are here spoken of regarding baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. But he makes a distinction. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So that baptism is a reality that, that is uniting both the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we will be reading also at this time, since we, we are considering this passage along with the Heidelberg Catechism, um, we've arrived at Lord's Day 26. If you want to follow with me, this is in page 55 in the back of our Psalters. This, this is the portion that begins the study of baptism. So I'll be reading these three questions. Question 69. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee. Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am certainly washed by His blood and Spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. Very simply, it is saying that as baptism is a washing with water, it is communicating what the spiritual washing with the blood of Christ does to the soul. In question 70, what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely, For the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross. And also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ. So that that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Question 71. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that's from the very end of Matthew. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration. That's from Titus 3, 5. And the washing away of sins. That's Acts 22, verse 16, when um, Apostle Paul is called by Ananias to be baptized. And he says, come and have your sins washed away. He equates the baptism with the spiritual reality of of what it does, not baptism itself. 
So having, having these questions in our minds, we, we will look now at the text and we will be seeing how baptism is, is such a blessed emblem of the very ministry and work of the Lord Jesus. And, and as we look at this passage that, that begins um, with the declaration that, that this is the beginning of the gospel um, of Jesus Christ in verse 1, the Son of God, and the very first thing that Mark does is bring forth John the Baptist and how he was one who was prophesied in the Old Testament who would come before Jesus. So we have in this chapter both John and Jesus brought before us. Now, even, even as we do this throughout this whole sermon, it's very important that you understand this one reality before us. That Christianity is not merely an idea. Christianity is not merely a philosophy. It's not just a set of teachings apart from a living reality. See, I'll be talking about the doctrine of baptism. And when we talk about baptism, we do speak of of other doctrines connected to it, like the doctrine of atonement and of forgiveness of sins. And we speak of redemption and of justification. And yeah, these, these are teachings. These are doctrines. But beloved, this is what's precious about Christianity. They, they don't just come out of, out of a list of teachings. We have the doctrines and the teachings being brought forth out of places like here in Mark chapter 1, where we begin reading again in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes to these prophecies. Sometimes a very small group of men, sometimes one man, like Buddhism, and like Islam. And there might be some stories that are told. But it's the Lord Jesus, and He comes to the water. In verse 9, it says that it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And there was that dove that came, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove that came and settled upon the Lord Jesus. And this voice that was heard from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You notice this is history. It is, it is not just a list of doctrines. It is not just a, a list of philosophies and ideas. And why, why do I say this? Because the other religions in the world, they are in essence just a man who sat down and put down his thoughts. Sometimes a very small group of men. Sometimes one man. Like Buddhism. And like Islam. And there might be some stories that are told. But it doesn't come forth out of history, the doctrines. It comes forth really out of the man, of, out of the mind of these individual people. But not Christianity. Christianity comes out of facts that God has put and drawn into history. And we see Jesus going to the water. And we hear the heavens opening and 
God's words speak forth out of heaven. And then we see Jesus going to the wilderness and there being tempted of Satan. And then Jesus begins his ministry. And he preaches in verse 15. We, we have the words, a little summary of his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Believe the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember that we saw this morning that one big problem with the heart of Gamaliel, that honorable leader who was used of God to stop the persecution against the apostles so that the fledgling church, the beginning of the church of Christ, could continue with a time of peace. Remember that the one problem with Gamaliel is he wanted more signs. He, he was not satisfied yet with the ministry of Christ and of these disciples. He thought time had to be given to them. And we saw that that was one very clear indicator that Gamaliel was an unbeliever and that it was not an honorable thing, even though it kind of looked like it was. Notice that throughout this sermon, we will be seeing the plurality of signs that God has given. That is why it is a sin for any individual to say, I need one more sign, and then I will believe. So keep that in mind. All the history and the facts that are drawn out of Scripture, and then also the reality that Really what we're going is from one sign to the next. We cannot speak of the ministry of John and of the ministry of Jesus and what it means, what this ministry is all about without seeing this multiplicity of signs. And what are they for? They are for children like you and me. We are people who need figures and who need signs. We are being told by the Lord, I will treat you like little children and you will open God's word and it will have pictures there. Look at those pictures and let each of those pictures lead you to me to believe. These pictures are for us to see God better, for us to understand him, for us to see that he's true to his word. That's what these signs do. They give us illustrations. They give us pictures so that we will believe. Not, not, to, not to entertain us, not to be like other children's books that we might pick because we want to be um, more um, entertained by the pictures. It's not in that way. It's so that we will be instructed. And so, first of all, the ministry of John. And we'll do something parallel in each one of these, looking first at the birth and then the ministry, the birth of John, and then the birth of Jesus, the ministry of John, and then the ministry of Jesus. So first of all, we see in the ministry of John that he has a miraculous birth. We, we in essence, has, have to start here. We, Mark does not bring the birth of John, but we know other places in Scripture that does. Before we look at the birth itself, what, what Mark does is he does go to a miraculous um, appearance because John the Baptist coming into the scene of history is nothing but fulfilled prophecy. Um, Mark points to Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 in these first 
three, two verses, verses 2 and 3, where, where we read Malachi 3, 1 is, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. This is the Messiah speaking and saying that he will have a, a messenger who will prepare his way. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. That is one of the quotes that that Mark is referring to. And then he also refers to Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, his appearance as an adult was, in a sense, a sign. It was prophecy being fulfilled. But we need to remember, and boys and girls, this this is something I know you remember, that his birth was also this sign or a sign um, because it was a miraculous birth. Remember Zechariah, his father. He was a priest. And it was his day to enter the temple and to offer the incense. And as it was common in the time of incense, it was also seen as the time of prayer because that is what the incense symbolized. And remember that the golden incense, the golden altar of incense inside the holy place had to have incense burning continuously. It was to represent that there was to be prayers ascending to heaven in behalf of God's people through the priests without ceasing. Even that in itself, of course, was pointing to the Messiah, to our mediator, who would be this very one who will pray for us without ceasing. There is not one interval, there is not one break that Jesus takes from praying from interceding in our behalf. And the priests were being a picture of that. And so Zechariah goes, and he's there before the incense um, altar. And as he's praying, and his prayer, the, the, the priestly prayer, would, would be always centered upon the Messiah, that God would forgive the sins of the people, that God would honor the sacrifice that was made outside, there would be a sprinkling of that blood inside, but that these prayers were communicating to the Lord, bring the Messiah. The faithful priest would never forget that request. And it is to that that we believe that Gabriel, who appeared on the right side of that altar of incense, said, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. If we understand theologically, his prayer would have had nothing personal about it for himself. It would have been a prayer for the people. And the prayer for the people always involved the Messiah. And Gamaliel, uh, not Gamaliel, Gabriel would be saying, that prayer is answered. And then he said, you will have a son. And the words that he brings are all pointing to the reality that he would be the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. The one who would prepare the way before the Messiah. 
Zechariah said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That is a miracle in itself. That he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right there, Gabriel was, was making the mystery cleared. That it wasn't that Elijah would come a second time. It would be that this preparer of the way would be like in Elijah. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Gabriel, Gabriel gave that code to the secret of who that Elijah would be. And that he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That, that was like a key phrase showing he will be the one who is the messenger of the Messiah. But remember, Zechariah doubted. He, he wondered how those things could be. He was, he was old. His wife was old. She had been barren all her life. And in return to that lack of faith of Zechariah, remember, that's when Gabriel revealed his name. He said that he stands in the presence of God. In in other words, there is nothing, Zechariah, that I will say that will not be divine. So everything I say, you take it from God himself. And I have said these things. You have doubted. So you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until these things are fulfilled. And for nine months, Zechariah could not speak. Remember, he went out. The people had been wondering what, was, what had happened. And he was only able to move with his hands. And the people knew something um, glorious had happened. But certainly something that made Zechariah quite astonished. But then, just fast forwarding, nine months, his baby is born. And eight days after he was born and they are going to circumcise the little baby, the, the priests come in and those who would be doing the, the circumcision in, a, of course, a, a ritual and ceremonial way, they, they indicate that the name should be Zechariah. And, and Elizabeth makes clear, so it's clear that he communicated with his wife that no, his name would be John. That, that was also one thing the angel told Zachariah, and he is sure now to obey. So Elizabeth, with her voice, says, no, 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 his name will be John. But the people who are there for the whole ceremony are confused, and they say, there's, there's no John in your family, and Zechariah is calling for that table, and when he gets that writing table, he writes on it, his name is John. And that is the moment where his voice returned. And beloved, why, why am I going through this whole account that, that we, we all know we're very familiar with? But you see, these are all signs. These are all miraculous events that were happening in history. And God had a purpose in them. This is for us to see that John the Baptist is no ordinary little boy. This is not a, 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 a normal kind of life event. He will grow up and have a ministry. And those neighbors and people, everyone who would know about this man, are attuned and should be to what he has to, to proclaim And so he had a miraculous birth, but he also had a unique ministry. 
He had a unique ministry. It was unique in that he had the great privilege to announce the coming Messiah. But see, when I say that, you need to understand the Messiah who had come. Because as soon as I say that, every time I say this, I, I, I have in my mind the reality. Isn't, isn't that what every prophet of old did? Every prophet, in a sense, had a summary to their messages. They were announcing that the Messiah would come. But see, the uniqueness about John the Baptist is that it wasn't 100 years later. It wasn't 400 years later. Um, the, 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 the prophet closest to the coming of Christ was Malachi, and that was 400 years in coming. So as Malachi went through the streets of Jerusalem, speaking of this messenger of the Lord and then of the Messiah himself... He didn't know perhaps all the details of how long, but it took 400 years before the day came. And John the Baptist had the great privilege to be, I remember, I think it's R.C. Sproul who puts it in this way, where he was standing on the same soil that the Messiah was standing somewhere, somewhere else. And there was that day that he was able to point to the very Messiah and say, Behold the Lamb of God. That's unique. No other prophet ever had that privilege. And he had this privilege. It was so unique and he was so faithful. And it was all with God's, of course, gifting him that the first pointing to the Lord Jesus was actually when he was unborn. And you'll remember that message as well, going back to the Gospel of Luke. Remember, as Mary also received the message that she would have a baby, she also heard from that same angel that Elizabeth was already with a baby, around six months old, and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And as soon as Elizabeth hears the greetings of Mary, who is with the Messiah in her womb, John the Baptist, who was in Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy. And the text says that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, and what followed was her song of praise. So John the Baptist began pointing to Jesus before he even walked upon this earth. And as we read in Mark, we see what he was doing in verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Look, look at that one verse. See how his ministry had that ordinance and the message was connected to it. He, he baptized people and what he preached was the baptism of repentance. Now let us put that picture before us. and We, we have elsewhere... Um, in, in Matthew, we, we see the people that he's preaching to. And, and there were soldiers, and there were prostitutes, and there were tax collectors. And they were all coming to listen to, to John the Baptist. And, and there would be moments that he would be explaining and preaching. And, and when they understood that they were to be baptized as a demonstration of their repentance, this, this is the figure that was all before them. Here these people were coming with their lives. And with their lives, they brought their sins. 
whatever sins it was, they, they had that carriage of sin, that weight of sin. And, and John was explaining, my ministry is declaring that the Messiah is here. Now, the one preparation is that to be his servant, to be in his kingdom, you cannot dare hold on to your sins. There is no place for our sins along the ministry of the Messiah. And, of course, the pointing effect was that he's the one who would take away our sins he made that very clear. He wasn't saying, you know, take away your sins first on your own by your strength and then follow the Messiah. He wasn't saying this because look at verse 8. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Right here he's indicating what I'm doing is more like an analogy and I'm, I'm doing like a figure. I'm doing something that will help you see that he will wash away your sins. Now if you truly are intent in having your sins washed away, if you're truly intent in repenting, well then file right now with me into the river Jordan and have your sins washed away. And remember, there were soldiers who would ask, what are we to do? And he would say, well, you're to be content with your salary. There would be tax collectors who would ask, what are we to do? And they had to not steal. There would be prostitutes asking, what are we to do? And he was saying, you are to live a pure life. And you can imagine every soul in that line, beloved. It was, it was like they were living what repentance is. Because in their hearts they were to think, sin is behind me and Christ is before me. John was just a picture of Christ. John was not going to be the Savior. He had to keep repeating that. Remember, many people got confused and he would have to make it very clear. And this is why he would say things like this in verse 7. And that he preached saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. So even as, as people were going toward John, John was saying, I'm, I'm diminishing and he will increase. So people were to think of it this way my sins are behind me I'm leaving theft behind I'm leaving immorality behind I'm leaving lust behind and I want Christ I want the Messiah I want his ministry to cleanse and to cover me and to wash me away and as they entered that river they were baptized with that water and as that river was a flowing river in all their minds there was something very graphic as as if to say there there's all that impurity washing away down the river and out comes the saint cleansed and pure because he repented because he believed John the Baptist's ministry was so unique that even, even his clothing made us think of repentance, it seems. When, boys and girls, when you, when you see him dressed with camel's hair, you know that's not a very comfortable thing. And we even know this, something close to camel's hair, but still far away, a lot smoother, a lot softer, is wool. But you don't put wool on without any shirt underneath because you feel prickly. 
and it's uncomfortable. And camel's hair is ten times worse. But he wore it. He made himself suffer, as it were, in his clothing. And this, this girdle of skin was just like a leather strap. It was nothing golden. It was nothing a king would ever wear. It was, it was something rude and, and something um, rustic. And he would eat locusts and wild honey. Now, we, it's from John the Baptist that many have taken this whole emblematic way of living and ran with it and, and, and where, where the whole monastic movement began and, and the mind that, you know, if I suffer, if I make my body to hurt, then I'll be closer to God, then I'll be really repenting. And we can go back to John and understand he, he wasn't proclaiming any of that. But there is a place in the Christian life of not allowing our bodies to be spoiled with the luxuries of this world. And perhaps the closest thing to this kind of mindset in a healthy way where we're not looking at our efforts that we're mortifying sins, but we're looking to the Spirit, the closest thing where an element of suffering happens is fasting where we fast and pray. As soon as we say fasting, we don't have elements of joy in our hearts. We have elements of sorrow. But that element of suffering, of maybe not eating for some hours or even for a whole day, is good. Because we, we make our bodies understand they are not the kings and queens of our soul. But that God is. That if I'm not careful... I will, not, um, let, I will not have Christ ruling over me, but my, my very body will be ruling over me. Look what Matthew Henry said regarding this reality. He says, In John's way of living, there was the beginning of a gospel spirit, for it bespoke great self-denial, mortification of the flesh, a holy contempt of the world, a nonconformity to it, he was clothed with camel's hair, not with soft raiment, was girt, not with a golden, but with a leathern girdle. And in contempt of dainties and delicate things, his meat was locusts and wild honey. The more we sit loose to the body and live above the world, the better we are prepared for Jesus Christ. And beloved, then we, we know we've so many of us, and it is a flu season, and many of us have been able to see the reality, the frailty of our bodies. And that is the one thing that is good in the affliction. We're realizing our body cannot be my master because it's so weak. It is so frail. It asks for things that it should not have. And repentance is that kind of work. Our, our bodies are desiring the sin, and we're supposed to say, no, body, I, I don't live obeying you. I obey my God and my Savior. And so John the Baptist communicates 
all of this. This is his miraculous birth and then his unique ministry. But let us go now to to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let us do even what John the Baptist would have us do. Not a a whole sermon focused on him. And, And even if we are focusing on him, it's only so that we can see Christ all the better. And this is this is The ministry of John is for this very purpose. So with Jesus, let us look at his miraculous birth. And if we can speak of a miraculous birth for John, we can speak of a more miraculous birth when we think of the Lord Jesus. Both John and Jesus share birth stories with miracles, but admittedly the the miraculous birth of Jesus is grander and greater. It's a greater miracle still. And so again, going back to Luke like we did for John, let us go back to Luke for the Lord Jesus. And after that very angel appeared to Zechariah, the text says that six months later, angel Gabriel went to marry a, a lady who was young, She was engaged to be married to Joseph, and she lived in the city of Nazareth of Galilee. And both Mary and Joseph were from the lineage of David. And when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he greeted her with the the most, um, most favorable greeting that a human could ever receive. He said to her, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. So Zechariah was told by the angel the name of his baby, John. Mary is being told by the same angel the name of her baby, Jesus. And right there you have the gospel because Jesus means Savior. So this woman is being told that she will have a baby who will be a Savior. That's to be his name. Joshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. Then he said, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So he will be a king. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That had been the problem of the Davidic line. There there would be another king who died and then a good king came, but then a bad king came and, and it got to where there was no more kings and Mary's being told, your son will be a king forever. That was, that was the message of the angel when, when she questioned um, how that could be. The angel gave the, the closest um, description of what the miracle of the incarnation is. He said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And it was after this 
that Mary went <clears throat> to visit Elizabeth. She, she loved the thought that there's another woman who was told by this angel to have a baby there. There was a kinship there beyond their kinship. And so she went to be encouraged, and she was. She, she was greatly encouraged by, by Elizabeth. And then, also fast forward, nine months, and Mary and Joseph are obeying the laws of the land because of the Roman command for the census and everyone had to go back to their um, place of birth and Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem and beloved you, you, you see as I'm as I'm reviewing all of this I'm keeping so much that I'm not saying I've spoke of the reality that they are of the Davidic line and those were the many myriads of miracle of prophecies that the Messiah would be from the line of David but then also that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem and, and remember that they couldn't find room in the end. She's about to have the baby. They, they, if, if he was laying in a manger, that's where we get the tradition that they must have found a stable that was offered to them. And in that same night, God is meeting through the angels the shepherds who were keeping watch of their flock by night, and they're told that they'll find a baby born who will be the Savior. Remember that the skies echo forth in that hymn, Glory to God in the Highest. And remember what the angel said. This is a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. You see, beloved, the arrogance for someone else to say, I want one more sign. There are many Gamaliels in this world who are saying Christianity looks very interesting. There's a possibility that it is God's work. Let us not go against it, lest happily we are found to fight against God. It sounds astonishing that a human with a natural mind could even say such a thing. Gamaliel might be saved, some people think. But no. Gamaliel knew much of God's word. And he knew the many prophecies better than even I, I believe I know because he, he had memorized parts of, of the Old Testament. But he looked at Jesus and he said, I'm not sure. So far, I will not receive him. But look at the miracle of the birth of Christ. And the miracle, beloved, wasn't only the fact that Mary was a virgin. That is a gigantic miracle in and of itself. But there was a grander miracle in the birth of Jesus. Because Jesus is God incarnate. It was the miracle of God taking on the form of human flesh. God who created all things 
and who created man in his image, then he came and took that image upon himself. But he took an image of man in the frailty of his existence because Jesus was a man who got tired and who needed to eat and who could weep and did and who could bleed and did and who could die and died. That was the greatest miracle so that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was a miracle in terms of births unparalleled. The the scripture is full of miracle babies. We have um, the birth of Isaac born to Sarah when she was 90 years old. And then we have the birth of Samuel born to Hannah who had been barren for many years. And we just saw the birth of John the Baptist born to Elizabeth, also had been barren and was now stricken in years. But the birth of the Lord Jesus, born to a virgin, and then God coming in the form of man. If we we look at what the angel described, it, it is... These are holy words. This is holy ground. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, Mary, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, Son of Mary, and Son of God. And to this miraculous birth, we add the reality of Christ's unique ministry. We saw the unique ministry of John the Baptist, but this is, of course, a, the most unique ministry. Um, <clears throat> he was a prophet. The Lord Jesus was a prophet. And Israel's history knew many prophets. Jesus did many miracles. And Israel knew many prophets, we should say some prophets, who did many miracles. And even that many miracles are less miracles than what Jesus did. See, Jesus as a prophet excelled them all. Jesus was also a priest. And Israel's history, of course, knew many, many priests. And he offered sacrifices as a priest, like the priests always did. But Jesus, as a priest, offered the greatest sacrifice of all. Jesus, as a priest, excelled in two ways. He excelled in that as a priest, he was holy unto the Lord, period. He didn't need a sacrifice to make him holy. He was holy. And then he offered the purest and the best he offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices which was a sacrifice of himself and we can say that he offered sacrifices plural because when he offered himself he was the sin offering he was the burnt offering he was the peace offering and he was the free will offering and and you know how Israel could offer those free will offerings and that's when you have those thousands of bullocks and and thousands and thousands of lambs because it was free it was a free will offering they could offer as many as they wanted and out of their love and out of their excitement out of their gratitude 
in the moments that you're thinking of when the temple was dedicated by David, by, 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 by Solomon, but even when the tabernacle was set in Jerusalem by David, this is when they brought these free will offerings that seemed to have no end. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross surpassed them all because it was the blood of the Savior. It was the immaculate Lamb of God. So as a prophet, Jesus surpassed all prophets. As a priest, he surpassed all priests. And he was also a king. And Israel's history knew many kings. And Jesus fought battles as the Israel kings fought many battles. But the battle that Jesus fought was the greatest. It was the grandest. It was the most important battle. Battles are fought to keep kingdoms free or to bring back kingdoms unto freedom. Um, Wars are made so that boundaries can keep intact. Wars are made sometimes to protect kingdoms whose boundaries are being um, forsaken. The Lord Jesus fought the battle to bring back from darkness and to establish his kingdom a greater darkness and a greater threat and that battle on Calvary all the forces of darkness were in allegiance against the Lord Jesus every wicked heart was fiercely fighting against him he was burdened with the sins and the iniquities of all his people. And beloved, the hardest part of that battle was that the judge of the universe had his wrath poured upon him. It was, as it were, to have his own father against him in this battle because he was being treated by the Father as the greatest sinner who's ever walked upon the face of the earth so that there would be a boundary to his kingdom and a people flourishing in it. See the uniqueness of the ministry of Christ. Israel had many prophets, priests, and kings, but Jesus was all three together. Israel had a few who were both. There was Joshua, who was a priest and a king. There was Samuel, who was a prophet and a priest. Never there was one who was all three. Some who wanted two of them at least. Uzziah He was a king, but he wanted to be a priest, so he ventured in with that incense and came out leprous. The Lord Jesus was all three, prophet, priest, and king. That was the uniqueness of the ministry of Christ. And and as a summary, and to, to conclude, a summary to the ministry of Christ was this, that battle that he fought on Calvary's cross was 
and atonement for the sins of his people. See, going, going back to the ministry of Mark, of John the Baptist, written in Mark, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And he said, there's one greater than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sins, you are cleansed. You are purified. That's why it's, 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 it's so superstitious to go to Israel and be baptized in Jordan. There are people who do that. Beloved, don't ever, ever be tempted to things such as that. That is just a little picture. It is nothing compared to what Jesus does. He cleanses your sins away. I have a few words in application. With, with all that I have said and looking at baptism and what it is and, and the beauty of it and in the ministry of Christ, the uniqueness, have you given heed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I think I have something of the message this morning still in my heart, this Gamaliel who knew so much of God's word, but it did not matter to him who Jesus was. He did not care to sit with those apostles and say, tell me something about your master. If you, if you escaped from prison by an angel this morning, I need to listen to what you have to say. The crowds are all out there waiting for the shadow of Peter to pass. But Gamaliel had no interest in the things of God. And so this is why it's important. I'm I'm preaching all of this. Have you considered who Christ is? Is the gospel dear to your heart? Are these truths valuable to you? Because there are no more valuable truths. Do you realize that this is the most critical need of your soul? You may have a big bill to pay tomorrow. You may have a big test to take tomorrow. There might be some treatments that need to be seen about this week. But beloved, your greatest need is Christ. Even if you're a Christian, because you never graduate from Christ. Christians who are suffering are usually Christians who are not sticking with Christ and staying with Christ and communing with God through Christ. Now, this is the preciousness of God's Word. Someone might be here and say, Pastor, you, you, how do you dare think of what I need most? You don't know my life. See, this is the beauty of the authority of God's Word. I stand in the authority of God's Word and I proclaim to you that your greatest need is Christ because your greatest problem is sin. Sin is at the root of every single problem. Individually, and corporately, and even globally. You, you know how many hours you have heard throughout this week that our problem is our economy, or our problem is communism, or our problem is socialism, or our problem is voting here and there. Those are not the problems. 
the greatest problem is sin. And Christ is a savior of sinners. He is the redeemer. He fought that battle. Now I pray that you would do what what I've read from a sermon, what Martin Lloyd Jones says when he when he makes this appeal for souls to come to Christ he said this turn from your unbelief and cry out to God for mercy and compassion and you will find that you will receive it admit your failure and admit your sin admit your blindness and admit your unbelief admit your utter helplessness turn to him as you are and say Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You say that to him, and he will give you an abundant of assurance that your sins are forgiven and that you are reconciled to God. And that you have a new nature. And that there lies awaiting you the glory of heaven and everlasting grace. O beloved friend. If hitherto you have been held in the bondage of unbelief. See it. Flee it. Cry out unto him for it is still in his infinite grace the day of salvation. Beloved, listen to the ministry of John and enter into that line of mourners, that line of men and women who will confess their sins and flee to Christ. Your repentance is running from the sin of the past and your faith is looking unto Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Faith and repentance always together. To have faith and no repentance is like someone who says, I want Jesus and enamored and embracing sin with the other hand. There are no such people on that line of John the Baptist. You either went to the Jordan or you stayed on the curb, on the shores. And to have repentance but no faith, that's, that's, that doesn't exist. There is no such thing. You'll never meet someone who's truly repentant but who's not looking to Jesus. That's just someone, as it were, in the river, drowning. And there's no Christ to look to. That's not true repentance. Repentance always looks to Jesus. Always believes. And true faith always repents. Always joins that line of mourners. Think of how humiliating it would be. If you were a soldier, you'd have to stand right beside an adulteress. Uh, 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 There were prostitutes on that line. And if you were a Pharisee who repented, you'd have to be right alongside a tax collector. But when you're repentant, those are your friends. You look around and you're comforted. That God saves one such as me. Because really in your heart you're thinking they're all better. I'm the worst sinner. You're not judging them for their sins. You're only judging above yourself. 
Because you see your sin. You see that up to your, your worthiness, you could drown in that river. I, I deserve worse. I, I deserve hell. But there's cleansing. This line is no humiliation. These are my friends, and they're the better ones than I. Because I have transgressed against my Creator and my Lord, and I deserve to perish forever. See, we become like John the Baptist. I'm not worthy to stoop down and unlatch the shoes of this Savior. Even if I was his slave, it would be too honorable for me. And Jesus, he came to this earth. And when he was about to die, remember washing the feet of the disciples. And I end with this. And Peter said, no, you will not wash my feet. He, he was thinking, um, this is too honorable. For, I, I don't deserve to be washed by you. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then he understood. He needed the cleansing of Christ. Beloved, is it too hard to repent, to humble ourselves, when for you to be saved, you needed God who was born to Mary? live upon this earth and take upon himself the sins of his people and be scourged and be kissed with betrayal and be nailed to a tree. He stooped to hell itself to save sinners. Why is it so hard for my heart to repent? That just shows how sinful. But he is so worthy. And he is so patient. And he gives you the grace that you need. Plead. Plead for that grace to see your sin. And you won't even see it as too hard to join that line. You will be the first one. You will say, I'm greater sinner than all of these. And my Savior is the greatest Savior that this world has ever seen. None more worthy. And then we'll be like the disciples we saw this morning. There may be persecution. And we will feel honored to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God Almighty, how we thank Thee for the miraculous birth of John and the miraculous birth of Jesus. And Lord, how both of these births are adding multitudes of signs and of astonishing proofs that Thou, Lord Jesus, are the true Messiah. The true Messiah would have to have one to prepare His way, and Thou did have one in John. And Lord, we thank Thee for the uniqueness of the ministry of John pointing to Christ and for the uniqueness, Lord Jesus, of Thy ministry. O Lord, may our hearts be captured by Thy love to come to this world and suffer as Thou did so that we would have a Savior. Lord, may every heart here turn 